10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. Command engine start. 2, 1. Ignition. Just this month, two wealthy business owners, Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos, took two separate private vehicles on flights beyond Earth. Now more people are saying that the age of lower-cost spaceflight is finally here, not only from government agencies, but from private entrepreneurs. Others are wondering if this is all just a big waste. When people are starving because our world groans under sin, is it really wise for people, including Christians, to support spaceflight? Welcome to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from Lorehaven, where we explore the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond, and we apply these stories' meanings to the real world that our creator, Jesus Christ, calls us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, and I publish Lorehaven.com. I'm also the co-author of a non-fiction book about fiction called The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, but for today, you can call me Major Tom, because we're coming to you live from our spaceship! We do like spaceships here, and that will be a disclaimer uh, that we have going forward into this topic. And this is episode 72, When Our World Groans Under Sin, Should Christians Support Spaceflight? Zach, I'm really tempted here to try to behave like some sort of very newsy podcast and offer all kinds of dates and details and purposes and quotes and clips from Richard Branson, who I believe is with the company called Virgin Galactic. And Jeff Bezos, um, who is from Amazon, most of us have ordered supplies from one and not the other. Uh, however, we're going to be a little bit more uh, worldview focused right now. We're, we're talking mainly about the responses from people to this news uh, that I think uh, you and I both are, are just catching up with. We got back from Realm Makers. A lot of this went down while we were out of town. Uh, these rich guys take a more expensive working vacations than we do. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, well, Stephen, every time you order a product on Amazon, it, it puts one little extra panel on Jeff Bezos' spaceship. So you're doing your part. It's okay if you didn't watch it. You supported it. I wonder if he uses the same packing material. <laughs> like, are those little brown boxes with the swoosh on the side? Is that what's being packed into Jeff Bezos' spaceship? Uh, I'm, I'm still catching up after these. I've, I've seen the memes. I've seen the jokes that we can't repeat on a family podcast. And more often, though, I've seen the pushback from people, including many Christians, who are wondering, wait a minute, you know, they're spending billions of dollars to go up to space for 10 minutes or so. Why not use that money to aid a crisis? Why not put it toward COVID research? Uh, why not use it to feed the poor? So that's what we're going to focus on now, because this topic is perfect. It's the intersection of science fiction come to life, as well as the biblical worldview as well as what we do with science and technology, how we understand these as believers uh, in light of the sin and suffering that's still going on in our world. Yeah, I think this is captured perfectly by uh, the editor-in-chief of the Babylon Bee, Kyle Mann, uh, who the other day tweeted, Jeff Bezos spent $5.5 billion to go to space. The U.S. population is $327 million. He could have given each American $1 billion and still have money left over. I feel like a $1 billion check would be life-changing for most people, yet he wasted it to go to space. <laughs> Apparently, there are only 5.5 Americans <laughs> in need of that much money. This is oh, why 
I mean, yeah. there was a real incident where a journalist uh, just missed that kind of observation off uh, by multiple orders of magnitude. <laughs> I, I guess Kyle Mann was spoofing that there. Oh, this yeah, is perfectly. why Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are going to space because they know math. <laughs> and those of us doing podcasts and stuck on the ground doing journalism and punditry know not this kind of math. Yes, I, I loved physics and calculus, but it, calculus was a, a little tricky for me. and. Uh, I was glad to get that over with in college and never go back to, to math class. So that's a concession. You're not uh, listening to some math nerds here. Uh, we like the imagination behind rocketry, private space flight, science fiction, all of that, which leads us to our concession stand. We also like concessions. Not a lot of math going on over here. Uh, the popcorn has been popped, and I think those, uh, those pretzels have just rolled off the oven, and they got those giant crystals of salt on them. Uh, good for flavoring, but uh, kind of sour to the tongue if you hit one just right. We've got a few concessions here. Uh, first off, we're, we're actually not starting with the idols with this discussion. I, I find that that is something that Christians and secular pundits alike will do when they're talking about something like science and technology and rich guys building rockets. I think that's an unhelpful approach. If you start by pointing out the wrongs and the idols uh, on the Christian side and the, the greed and the other evils on the secular side, you're not exploring what is the point? What is the positive purpose of basic science and exploration? You're just assuming that everybody out there knows the point and then we can move on. I don't think Christians should make that assumption about anything that people do. I want to know what is the purpose of that thing, whether it's fantasy or novels or literature or art or music or church or families or science and technology. What is the purpose according to God's word or a, a derived exploration of that purpose from God's word? And what is the idolatry after we understand that positive purpose? We want to ask first what a thing is for before we are setting our sights against it. Similarly, uh, we recently at Lorehaven actually had an article from Marion Jacobs about the importance of thinking critically about popular culture. Instead of asking the question, well, how much is too much? She, and I agree with her, uh, says that this is the wrong question for Christians to ask. How much is too much? It's purely reactionary. Uh, she says, instead of asking that question, we need to be asking, how should we engage this with critical thinking? And the critical thinking comes from a mind transformed by God's word. Uh, there was a Christian website just a few days after her article came out, which literally then put up a podcast asking, well, how much is too much about popular culture? I find that approach ultimately disappointing. I think it's just as disappointing when secular pundits ask the same kind of, mm -hmm. frankly, culturally fundamentalist question, well, how much space flight is too much? Too much compared to what? Who sets the quantities? Who sets the standard of measurement here? I don't think that secular people or Christians should do that. I think that it is about motive. It's about heart. Uh, it's about God's worldview, not ours. We though, Zach and I, we admit our bias here. Uh, we both do enjoy the concept of space exploration, but we also love the biblical concept of missions work. I live in a world where God has told people to do both of those things. As we'll explain later, I believe that if Adam and Eve had never sinned, we wouldn't need this kind of missions work. We wouldn't need to feed the hungry and all of that, but we would have had rockets. And so it's just the issue of, can we still have rockets even while we're doing missions work and hunger relief and all of those kinds of charitable enterprises? Our worldview here, for Zach and me, our worldview is Christian. Uh, we're not going to make any secular arguments for feeding the hungry. I think ultimately any of those points come from people having the morality of God in their hearts, 
but they really can't justify it in their heads. I don't think they understand a biblical purpose for charity, for feeding the hungry, uh, for any of that stuff, uh, just as they don't seem to understand or care about a biblical purpose for rocketry and taking flights beyond Earth's orbit. One other concession, perhaps, is that I do have several friends that work in the space industry. Uh, so a big shout out to them. You know who you are if you're listening. Yeah, we, we are supportive of the space industry, not, not just the idea of space travel, but the actual people, the actual companies and agencies that are at work. So that, that is like total, you know, I'm just going to admit my bias, like you said, Stephen, because I know and respect these people personally. And um, yeah, I'm a big believer in what they're doing. Meanwhile, while Branson and Bezos are shooting things up into the sky, it is unfortunate that objects can actually fall from the sky and land on Earth, which is exactly what happens in the book that is our first sponsor for this episode, Joshua David's novel Seed Judgment, which is a science fantasy tale of biblical proportions. It's available at Amazon. This is where the story takes us. Seed falls from the heavens and judges humanity. One foretells of the coming calamity, but the words are heeded too late. Few remain after the war against the cosmic demon. Long confined to one of the few outposts left on Earth, Sal accepts an unauthorized mission to find a survivor lost in the Vegas wastes. He believes his target is special, imbued with a spirit that might finally turn the tide against the darkness, but to save her from the risen, still haunting humanity, he'll have to fight alone and outgunned against enemies that have already conquered the world. That's the story description. We actually had a Lorehaven-sponsored review of this book in which we said in part, quote, Joshua David's seed judgment marries the thing, Resident Evil, and Mad Max to generate a post-apocalyptic tale of frenetic intensity. There is a beauty to the brutality, a dance in the destruction. End quote. You can find the novel cover, the novel description, all of the links at our show notes, lorehaven.com slash podcast for episode 72. So Stephen, what is the ultimate purpose? of not only space travel, but technology that helps us get there, the universe that we would go to explore. What, what's the point of all this? That's the big question. And it is the question that we have to ask as Christians before we talk about the bad guys, the greedy, rich people, uh, the insufferable government bureaucrats, like any of that idolatrous stuff represents a twisting of the ultimate purpose. I think we cannot understand that in biblical perspective unless we ask this question. So I guess my, my first point there is that please ask the question about ultimate purpose before we start talking about the sinful twisting of that. Before we condemn the greed and exploitation about these guys building rockets, any of the pollution that they're doing, uh, any of the bad motives projecting onto them, maybe the ideal of some uh, fat cat who doesn't care for the poor. What's good here? Christians in particular have to ask this question when they look at anything in culture. What is the good here? And to do that, we need to understand, as we've spoken about many times on Fantastical Truth, the cultural mandate. That's God's command in Genesis 1.28. When he created Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden and he said, make stuff using my stuff. This is obviously a paraphrase, but it's God's world. We're just living in it, but he wants us to act as his regents. He made people to bear his image, and therefore people get to create just as God creates. We just make stuff using his stuff. We can't create stuff out of nothing. So it's a little different. God is still the ultimate authority, but people are given the responsibility and the joyous calling, not only to make families, but to go out and steward the earth, 
We're supposed to grow crops. We're supposed to name the animals. We're supposed to understand the world that we see, which would lead inevitably to science and technology. Adam and Eve were given stewardship of the earth at first. And that's where we got to ask kind of a crazy question. If God wanted Adam and Eve to spread across the earth, to start in the garden, but not stop there, they would have eventually built cities, not just gardens. And in fact, you see the divine ideal of a city in Revelation 21, uh, the image of the new Jerusalem. So it's, it's gardens and cities all together there at the end after Christ has returned to transform the planet. So cities aren't bad. Human technology and science and architecture and all of that are not just not bad. They're actively originally good. And thus rockets and space exploration and maybe even future colonies on other planets are also good. They would have been good in a world without sin. No complications from idolatry or greed or forsaking one calling in order to build a bigger rocket. I think humanity would have reached the stars if Adam and Eve had never sinned. I think that is maybe even the original plan that we'll get to once Christ returns, if not a little bit in fits and starts before then. That's another episode. We're going to try to focus mainly on the, the private space flight acts now. But you actually see, though, in Scripture, and, and I'm, I might venture very carefully here, a condemnation by God when people are not fulfilling this calling. You mean the calling to spread around the to earth? To spread around the earth, yes. Yeah. Uh, after the flood, uh, which, of course, people had spread across the earth and uh, made a terrible mess of it. Uh, they were acting rebelliously, uh, such that uh, God, grieved in his heart, decided to wipe them off the face of the earth. He sends the flood. Uh, he preserves one family and all of the species of animals in the ark. They land. Everybody gets to work reproducing again. So good. They're pursuing the cultural mandate. They're making families. They're having kids like they're supposed to do. They're spreading across the earth. And then they all get together in one place, according to Genesis 11, and they build a single tower for a single purpose, acting in a sense like God. Like we're all going to get together. We're all going to be like God. We're going to build this tower. We're going to reach the stars. There's a lot going on there. But I do note that God actually does discipline this people in a sense, uh, confusing them by giving them all different languages after they're staying in one place. God doesn't want this. He wants them to spread across the earth. The point of God making people is to have his divinely appointed human regents to steward the creation. I don't think there's any reason from scripture to limit that to earth. If we get the technology to go further, why wouldn't we? I think that all that stuff is put there in space in order to glorify God. And sure, we could stay on earth and worship God for his infinite majesty because we see it reflected in the stars. But couldn't we also go and put a flag on a planet orbiting one of those stars? I think Genesis 11 is, is, appears to be all about technology and its proper use, but also contrasted with the misuse. Uh, and when you've got a bunch of rich people all getting together, building giant structures that reach into the sky and then light off at the bottom and then shoot up into the sky and then come back. Uh, the Tower of Babel has something to say for us, but only in light of that cultural mandate in Genesis 1.28. We'll talk about the fall and its effects on the cultural mandate in just a bit. So when we were in St. Louis for the Rollmakers Conference, uh, after it was over, my daughter and I went to go see the Gateway Arch and actually go up the tram, you know, that goes inside all the way to the top. It's like, 680 feet up there. Is it still like climbing inside a washing machine? Because I remember going up yeah. when I was a very small child, and even then it was a universally negative experience, I would say. 
Yeah, it was, I mean, I took it, my daughter took a picture of me where the door to get in the little pod, it goes up to like my armpit. <laughs> it was tiny to get in this little, it was like an escape pod. And it takes about, I don't know, 10 minutes or something to go all the way up, five, 10 minutes. Um, they say it takes like a half an hour if you take the stairs up. So I, you know, and I had this feeling like, oh, this is what it would be like to get in a spaceship or, or something because you're always crammed in so small. But then um, they talk about the whole point of this arch is the basically making a memorial to how St. Louis was the gateway to the West. And they have this huge map on the floor in the museum that shows all the different uh, pioneer trails that went out from St. Louis to the, to the old West, all the way to California and Oregon and all these other places. And you can actually trace like where all the, um, the pioneers went. And then they had like a, I don't know if it's a replica or an actual wagon, but you could see what people traveled in. And it's kind of ridiculous to think, man, this like a little wooden box with some wooden wheels and a piece of canvas over the top and a couple of animals are pulling it. And this is how people traveled across this vast wilderness. It's not entirely different from how it probably feels like to be an astronaut going to the moon. You're in this little tin can just this little bubble of air out in this void of nothing. And for days and days, or, or if you're going to Mars, I guess, weeks or months, it's just amazing how people brave these wildernesses with very little. Why would we do this, right? Why would humanity travel these vast distances in this seemingly very inadequate kind of vehicle? And the only reason is it's got to be a God-given impulse to go explore. I think it is a God-given impulse. I think that it works out a little bit differently when people are braving the elements. The elements would not have to be braved if people did not sin. What does that mean? Would we have been able to breathe in space? Would we have not had to breathe? Would there have been ether in space if Adam and Eve had never sinned? Who knows? The mind races. I'm sure there are some Christian novelists out there just itching to explore this imaginary version of the world. It's speculative, but it's within biblical parameters, I suppose. But of course, Adam and Eve did sin, and the elements suddenly are a thing to be brave. Thorns and thistles are going to stab you if you try to walk across the final frontier. Uh, if you try to go to the moon, it's going to kill you. Radiation will get you if starvation and lack of air don't. Uh, that's to say nothing about animals and other predators uh, going on out on the prairie. Uh, it is a very nasty place, but evidently these people felt it's worth it to explore anyway. Desperation makes people do this. Uh, the desire for a rebooted life makes people do this. I think it's a great impulse that people are still called to do, even in a world distorted by sin and the suffering that results from sin. I think a lot of people start with the conclusion that there is no way to make space travel or space colonization or you know, putting people on Mars, they, they start with the assumption that that is impossible and that there is no way to do it. Um, therefore, any attempt to do it is wrong. J just look at, like you said, all the dangers of space travel. So why bother? And I sat there thinking when I was looking at that map of the pioneer trails, I'm like, I'm sure there were a lot of people back then who said the exact same thing. Like, why in the world would we go? across this continent that no one's ever gone across before in this pitiful little wagon. I mean, it was so funny, Stephen, like thinking of those wagons, you know, I drove to and from St. Louis and it was like 800 miles or something that I, I drove it in a day. 
And I thought, how long did it take them to go 800 miles in one of these wagons when there's no roads? And, and yet people did that, but I'm sure there were naysayers back then. I'm sure Christopher Columbus had some naysayers. So I think that there is a certain mindset of people that sees no practical or transcendent value in exploring space or sending people to Mars or whatever. So that's why every time there's this, one of these high profile rocket launches, you can reliably find people complaining about it on social media. Yeah, it really is more about an opposition to the wealthy or a particular view of business or a particular view of entrepreneurship. Uh, you name checked Christopher Columbus earlier. Uh, he also suffers or undergoes, however you look at it, much criticism. And the parallel is actually pretty strong there. Columbus was comparatively wealthy, uh, tasked with this mission by, as I recall, the king and queen of Spain. So this is another project by the wealthy. It's usually the wealthy or the adventurers or the celebrities, you know, the, the kind of really you know, macho type celebrities who go into a frontier, you know, hiking across Antarctica or climbing Mount mm -hmm. Everest or a place like that. Uh, no one's settling Antarctica or Mount Everest, but people did settle North and South America after Columbus, quote, discovered, end quote, these continents. And of course, the Vikings and all of that. There's all kinds of sin associated with that. If you're looking at it uh, from just this, this very bifurcated approach, it's either all good or either all evil. You're going to be disappointed. Yes, there was much bad that was associated with Columbus. He may have been greedy. He had bad motives and along with any good motives. Uh, the Vikings, of course, are well known for pillaging and all manner of evil. I'm sure that Elon Musk and Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos and all of that gang have plenty of sinful motives and idolatries mixed in with any of the noble human aspirations to get into space and start a new private space race. I'm comfortable with that as a Christian because I understand that sin distorts these things. It's, it's not a matter of being all bad or all good. Yes, I believe that people are in a sense totally depraved. They're not going to be saved by their good motives, but God does give people common grace. They can still reflect that pioneering spirit, reflect that creative impulse that God has given them, even if they don't care to worship him through that or bring it into submission under Jesus Christ, which brings us into our bigger, uh, our second big point here. How does sin distort our view of God's universe and our technology? And of course, we've already crossed over into that just a little bit. This is from a few months ago, but this was a tweet by Bernie Sanders. You may already know what he's going to say here, but he said, quote, when we landed on the moon, there was great collective pride in that achievement. Our space program should be something that we all take part in. We shouldn't hand over $10 billion in corporate welfare to Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, who are jointly worth $350 billion to fund their space hobby, end quote. And I'll, I'll note here that this has like 13,000 likes, 3,000 retweets, but about a thousand comments and a lot of people giving pushback on this. So, you know, he, he ignited a bit of a firestorm with that comment. And as I like to say, all of this kind of pushback in my mind boils down to, uh, but Lord, couldn't we have sold the spaceships and given that money to the poor? <laughs> it, it's that kind of mindset of like the only thing that matters is ending poverty or whatever. Not that that's wrong. Like we should want to end poverty, but it's just, it's interesting, Stephen, how one track minded these comments tend to be. It's like, well, why are we giving money to these people? Why are we, why are they investing their own money in this space travel? Why don't they do something better with it? And it really does seem to miss the point 
And maybe the point hasn't been communicated very well by the space barons or whatever. Uh, we can get to that in a moment. But it it does seem very odd that there there is like this clash in people's minds of either we go to space or we do something good on Earth. Well, there's a lot going on, even in the use of the word we. Why are we giving money to this uh, yeah. rich person? Like, who's we? What do we mean by giving? Uh, a government agency is taking money. And, and and let me just, uh, oh yeah, the concession stand is still open. Let me just run back and <laughs> grab a little candy bar here. Quick concession. Yes, whenever you're talking about Senator Bernie Sanders, who is a self-professed socialist from the state of Vermont in the United States, or, or any other uh, criticism like this, we're going to cross over a little bit into politics, okay? But we're going to try not to stay there. It's just inevitable. Because over the generations, it's just assumed now that if you're talking about poverty relief or feeding the hungry, then these are political questions. I personally don't think they should be political questions. I think that these are individual responsibilities and speaking to it as a Christian, I think Christians should be taking the lead with these issues and people from other religions should be taking the lead in these issues, coming up with ways that actually work to feed the hungry and clothe the poor and all of this. That is the responsibility of the church. That's the responsibility of, I think, oh, what do you know? Again, private efforts. I support private spaceflight and private poverty relief. I don't think governments are very good at this. So can we maybe at least for now just suspend the notion that if you oppose certain government-led efforts, then you must hate the poor? That is an imaginative fantasy that I do reject, uh, just as I must challenge the fantasy that I keep seeing in memes that show like a, a Morpheus with the red pill and the blue pill, and there's one option and the other option, or the guy sweating when he's faced with the control board with two buttons. Button one says, fly in space for 10 minutes and button two says end world hunger uh, <laughs> only one of these buttons actually works it may have been a fantasy 70 years ago rich guy presses button launches himself to space for 10 minutes like literally there had to have been one button that did that right or you can imagine a whole team in the you know, ground control collectively pushing buttons to make that work but there is no end world hunger button i wish there were I wish there were no hurricanes. I wish there were no earthquakes. I wish there were no poor people, but there is no end world hunger button. It is a fantasy. And I, I want, though, I want to honor and respect the people who are, who are clinging to this fantasy because what does it mean is what I'm asking. Well, what does it mean? Are you hungry? Like, is, is this really, are you hungry or are you hungry? Is that why you wish there was a button to push that would help you? Like, I think people like to distract themselves from their own needs, whether it's hunger or depression or general malaise about life or trauma or any of this, and they distract themselves by thinking about politics. We've talked about this before. Uh, if I can think about the big issue blown up to the national or world level, world hunger is what I really want to work on, not my own hunger for something. And that's, that's maybe an over-positive view of that. You know, I'm not even talking about the people who are pretending they believe there could be an end world hunger button. Some people are all about ending world hunger, but they don't want to give a sandwich to the guy next door. <laughs> and maybe if you give a sandwich to the guy next door, he wouldn't know what to do with it. That's an issue of sin. Sin is what leads to world hunger. Uh, it's not just oppression. It's not just other people's fault all the time. There are issues of personal responsibility and bad economies and lack of resources and lack of understanding how to till the earth per God's command in Genesis 128, some areas get more thorns and thistles than other areas. 
And then some areas benefit from generations that make tools or practice more at beating back the thorns and thistles, and they can grow crops more effectively. Sin distorts these things, and the Christians should understand that. Sin also distorts our explanations of why people go hungry or why we have the poor among us. Sin also distorts technology, and some people do use technology to ignore the real needs of the people around us, including the technology that people use to make silly memes about imaginary things like an end world hunger button. Uh, <laughs> I think all of this resorts, uh, results from distortions of sin. Uh, people are distracting themselves from real needs by imagining, by the way, that there is some rich guy out there that if he only took his $5.5 billion away from the rocket fund and put it toward the world hunger fund, then you could just get rid of world hunger just like that. It is frankly a fantasy and we are fantastical truth. So we like fantasy, but we also want to know what is the deeper meaning behind a fantasy and whether it's good or bad. There's a meme that I think I'll post in the show notes. Uh, Zach, we've talked before. Uh, both of us, I think, kind of like this meme format. It shows like the, the human brain lighting up as, uh, as the human reaches progressive stages of enlightenment. It actually looks a little new agey here. There's five stages to this one. Stage one, angry that someone else doesn't just give hungry people food. Stage two, contributing to a charity that gives hungry people food. Stage three, contributing to vocational efforts that let hungry people feed themselves for a lifetime. Stage four, funding soil conservation work so hungry communities can feed themselves for generations. And then stage five, told enlightenment, according to this meme, working for political change so hungry countries, which already have everything they need to feed themselves, no longer have those resources stolen. I agree with this. I would just add a stage six or seven. Obviously, Christians as the church need to address not only physical hunger, but spiritual hunger. Uh, give us bread, people cried around Jesus, but they didn't have any interest in him as the bread of life. People need both, but they need the bread of life in order to live forever. And so I would make that a stage six. And then stage seven is Jesus comes back. And what do you know? Jesus Christ pushes the end world hunger button. He doesn't even need the button. He can make it happen. He will restore all things, all want, all hunger, all uh, anger, all suffering will be gone. But it's an illusion if we think some rich guy will make that happen before Jesus gets here. Uh, it is another form of idolatry, and I think Christians ought to call that out gently whenever we see it. Yeah, well, it's interesting, too, looking at the um, some of the comments to the senator. And someone said, well, you know, imagine if you had this attitude about 60 years ago during the Apollo era. The moon lander cost $2.2 billion in 1960s dollars, which today oh my adjusted goodness. for inflation is $23 billion. Wow. So it, you know, if you've got this attitude now about $5 billion, you would have definitely had the same attitude with basically $23 billion. And that was money the government was paying to Grumman, uh, the, the company at the time that developed the moon lander. Whereas in Bezos and Elon Musk, I mean, yeah, they are raising this money themselves and they are actually offering a cheaper service to get astronauts to the moon. And someone else kind of broke that down about like how much cheaper SpaceX is compared to the traditional contractors that NASA has used. So it's actually saving a lot of money. So, so then someone's like, well, we're still giving money to space and we could have given it to healthcare. And I, you know, my meme for that is the, why not both? You can, you can pull up web pages all over the internet and there's one that NASA has like, well, what are the practical benefits of space travel? And there's one I want to hone in on. It's the ultrasound machine. The ultrasound machine saved the life of Naomi and our second daughter. Naomi had a condition that we only found 
when, when she was pregnant with our second daughter that we only found because of an ultrasound machine and they could schedule a, a C-section to save both, literally save both of their lives. And we have met other people who, um, like we, we met this woman a couple years later who her mother and would have been her sister both died in childbirth. Uh, because of having the same condition, but 30 years ago or 40 years ago before they had ultrasound machines. And so, I mean, that's just one thing. Like there's so many things that have been developed because of space exploration. And so it, it definitely improves life here on earth. Yeah. But like you said, we're, we're just not pushing the so-called easy button to just end hunger, end sickness and whatever, but, but, but it kind of does push that button. Uh, I mean, there's just some amazing technologies that have been developed because of space exploration. So it definitely benefits us. But, you know, we we are kind of getting, though, into the secular arguments for space travel. And I I think there's a better reason. And it's simply Romans 1, which says that the invisible attributes of God can be seen by looking at the physical creation he's made. And I, I think the more that we study the stars in the cosmos, the more we learn about this planet and our solar system, just by looking at it, just by exploring it, we are seeing more of God's glory and more of God's character. I have this whole list of scriptures about space in you know, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 8, when I consider your heavens, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Carl Sagan would look at the stars and say, we're just a speck on a speck of nothing. And, you know, we're just totally insignificant compared to the universe. And it's like, well, that's half true. You read the rest of the Psalm, Psalm 8, and it says, who are human beings that you care for them? Like we know that God cares about this planet among all the planets he's made. This is the planet we know for sure he cares about that he so much that he incarnated himself to physically walk on this planet. And so when we study the rest of God's creation, we see more of his glory. And I, I think that in and of itself is a good enough reason to go into space. I agree. And it's certainly a fantastic reason to go into space in a world without sin or in the future restored world, the new heavens and new earth, where we don't have the issue with hunger or all of that. Then it's People could say, well, then now it's easy now that you're not hungry to think about those things. And I, in part, would agree. Yes, if I saw a hungry child in front of me, I'm going to give them food. I might, especially if I were close to the situation, look into the family situation. How are they constantly hungry? Will it actually help just to give them a stipend like of my own money or government money or whatever? Uh, are they going to be able to use that wisely? I mean, some of that goes into issues of how charities work and how Christians ought to engage with poverty and the different causes of all of that. But in part, along with that, you need to be feeding that person spiritually. You need to be discipling that person. Yes, yes, they need a sandwich. They need food. They need their basic needs to be met. But a basic need is also the need for God the need to understand the world, to see the world according to God. And like you were saying, Zach, the space exploration, the the genuinely inspirational moments that come from looking up at the stars and considering the work of God's hands, that is just as crucial. So that's, that's the biblical argument, I would say. The humanist argument is, well, look at all the scientific benefits that we get from that. And I agree with that. 
But what's kind of fun is as a Christian, you can borrow all you like from the classic humanist arguments. You know, we, 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 we explore the stars to better ourselves. You know, that's part of the ongoing course of human development. You can grab all of the best lines from Captain Picard or Captain Kirk. They can fit into the biblical worldview. But I think as people move away from a gospel worldview like that, they're even going to lose the humanism. I've said before, mostly as a joke, that if I weren't a gospel Christian, my next best option wouldn't be another religion, but I would just jump straight to classic humanism of the of the Star Trek variety or even of the Carl Sagan variety, because they still got a little bit of that woo-woo, look at the universe, yeah. <laughs> uh, gives us some perspective, like it gives you a little buzz, you know, wow, we're so insignificant and look at the bigness of space and okay, you get your jollies, although you don't know whom to thank for that, it's just there it created itself in a sense. Christians don't think that way. Christians think in terms of God first, creation second, and see our place in that world. You know, and, and a perfect verse to go with that is First Timothy 4.4, 4, for everything created by God is good. Amen. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And, you know, one of the, you know, one of the first things that happened on the moon was, was communion. Uh, because Buzz Aldrin, that was important to him, and they they actually cut the broadcast. My my sister knows all about this, and I'm probably getting something wrong, but that was his attitude of like, "Hey, we're on the moon. We're the first people here. I'm going to give thanks to God and take communion. And why not? You know, like th- this is the universe God created. It, it's not like, you know, there's the whole like in the Fermi paradox of like, well, if if there's aliens and why aren't they here yet? There's this idea of the zookeeper." that somehow like we are being kept on the earth or aliens are being kept away. That's an interesting idea, but it's kind of fantastical. I I think the reality is we have the capability to go to space because God has allowed it. We we saw, like you said, with the tower of Babel, we saw God put an end to that. And so, and there were actually people uh, in the fifties and sixties that thought God will put a stop to the Apollo program. And you know, they were wrong. And so it's not a new idea that, to think that there is a limit to our technology or our, how far we can go. But as far as we know, God is allowing it to happen. Uh, so it's not something he has expressly like definitively forbidden. And so I think let's receive it with Thanksgiving and go enjoy it. And yeah, you and I may disagree about how practical it is. We may not disagree as much as I think we do, but, uh, I just say, why not try? Yeah. It, it, the, Apostle Paul goes on in verse five to say that we receive God's good gifts with thanksgiving for it is made holy through the word and prayer. And that's why we're approaching this through the perspective of the word and prayer, not from looking at it and relying primarily on our emotional responses. Oh, there's so much suffering in the world. There are poor people. Yes, there are. That is terrible. But we don't want to be like, frankly, difficult not to say this, but the legalistic Christian who then looks at something like popular culture or music or videos. I mean, this is a culturally separatist impulse to look at the thing. And all we see is the idolatrous twisting. We're not looking at it and asking the big question. What is this thing for? We just write it off. Oh, that must be evil. It looks evil. Someone who made that is evil judging their hearts. You don't know that person's heart. Most likely that person's heart. If they're not a Christian is a mixed bag. There's idolatry in there. There's common grace. There's noble human aspirations mixed in there with a very strong desire to get on TV. It's all the same person. Uh, If you get out in the world and meet more people, I think you're going to be a happier person knowing that most folks are just that kind of complicated. And we're talking about non-Christians here. 
which is the big issue for Christians in trying to understand, okay, we're not talking about Christians building rockets, as we will likely do, I think, after Christ returns. But that's our third big point here today. How might Christians view unsaved people exploring space? How do we look at people who do not know Jesus, who may or may not care for the poor, but are choosing to build rockets and build their private space organizations? But then from there, how do we look at possible space exploration in eternity? Elon Musk has this phrase, let's make life multiplanetary. And, uh, and he's, he said something to the effect of, well, we need a backup plan for humanity in case something happens to earth. And then everyone kind of spirals out of control about climate change and all this kind of stuff when you talk about that. But there was a kind of a response to this on Twitter. Someone said, uh, you know, colonizing Mars isn't just a backup plan. It's a, it's a step into the rest of the cosmos. And so that's sort of the sense of destiny that like, we, we have to do it. Like it, it's, it's what we should do. Um, and it will benefit things on earth. Again, it's sort of that humanist argument. Well, there's all these planets out there. We might as well go there and look, whether or not we think those are good arguments. The fact is Elon Musk is pretty serious about putting people on Mars. Like I mean, my favorite thing to do is just listen to him talk about it because he'll kind of like, as he's talking, he'll, he'll kind of like hatch out his plans in pretty fine detail. Uh, he just, he very much like thinks out loud. Um, and Jeff Bezos, he's a lot quieter, you know, he's a lot more introverted, but he's pretty serious too about putting humans in low earth orbit. Um, he has this whole idea to build these elaborate space stations called O'Neill cylinders, which use like artificial gravity. And if you've seen the movie Elysium with Matt Damon, something along the lines of that, where we can have these entire cities in space. And I mean, he has this like really vast grand vision to like move most of humanity to orbit and, and sort of keep the earth as a, like a national park and do all of our mining and pollution and industrial work, you know, on the moon or in orbit or in space or on Mars and basically just kind of preserve the earth for just for looking at and it, making it, keeping it pretty, letting it, letting nature have itself again. So again, there's, there's a lot of like kind of other worldviews mixed up in this, but the fact of the matter is we as the church need to prepare for Martians. <laughs> and I, and I, don't, I don't mean like aliens. I mean, humans born on Mars. I think unless Jesus comes back in the next couple of years, I think we're going to have Martians. I think we're going to have entire cities on Mars or in the asteroid belt. And then we're going to have belters and we're going to have people out there that need, that need Christ. And I think we need to send missionaries there, at least have Christians riding, going along for the ride. I mean, because imagine if, you know, we talk about Columbus, imagine if the church had said, oh, well, why, why should we go across this ocean? There, there may not even be any land. And if you get there, I mean, what does it matter if people go there? You know, we, we sent missionaries, we, in, in the pilgrims. And then, you know, America has become this mission sending base for the rest of the world. So I like to imagine what if the moon or, or what if these space stations or what if Mars became a mission sending base, not just like a place that uh, like in the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, uh, Total Recall is like this wild west and kind of like a very uh, decadent kind of place. But what if Christians like take ownership of that and say, we're going to go there. We're going to set up churches or we're going to set up missions training centers to go to other people in the solar system, wherever they happen to be. And we're not going to let anyone not hear about the gospel wherever they are in space. I think that would be awesome. 
that is incredibly practical and necessary. My mind tends to go in the direction of the cultural mandate. What are people made to do as human beings before we start talking about sin and corruption and redemption and then the Great Commission? But it is necessary to look at the world through the lenses of both of these callings, cultural mandate in Genesis 1 and the Great Commission right there at the end of Matthew. The Christian obeys both of these. Both of them are intertwined. You cannot have one without the other. And that seems to me a wiser approach than looking at this and wishing it wouldn't happen. You can look at the world and wish that it weren't so uh, that more people are sleeping in on Sunday mornings and playing their video games instead of going to church. Or you can look at the world realistically and say, okay, this is what we have. We have a world of, of a few centuries ago. Oh no, people are leaving England. They're leaving Spain. Uh, they're going over across the new world. We could complain about that, that they were uh, upset with the Church of England and wanting to go start their own churches. Or we could go along as missionaries and understanding that this was the pioneering spirit, which is not evil, and then hopefully trying to get better doctrine, better theology alongside those folks. And yes, if there are Mars cities, if we get into low Earth orbit permanently or start moon bases or any of that, those places will need chapels. And in fact, nowadays, there might be a greater chance of getting the gospel in alongside these private space organizations because they seem to be at least somewhat less hostile to a biblical worldview than would be a U.S. government agency. Uh, the astronauts could not read Genesis 1 uh, from their space capsule now. And if they did, it probably would not go over broadcast, but they used to. There were more vestiges of a Judeo-Christian worldview back then, even in the 60s, yeah, than, there, eight, than there are now. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and I see that space exploration and that impulse to explore and to use science and technology for something other than self-gratification, uh, that is at least closer to the biblical ideal. Uh, what is absolutely uh, pagan in the worst sense and, and the wrong kind of humanism is the kind of humanism that basically sits on Earth and contemplates what kind of different human you are and what is your identity and what kind of alternative relationships are you going to put together? Like that to me seems far more difficult uh, to get into with the gospel uh, than people who are all about space, who are looking up into the stars, who are not looking at themselves, their own bodies, their own identities, uh, any issues that they have mentally or emotionally they've been able to work on or find some kind of greater sense of healing by looking beyond themselves. And that impulse, that is a good one, because now we're not being distracted by ourselves and our problems. Like maybe we're not just uh, struggling to eat, but we're also not struggling with our own identities. We're instead looking upward. And I think that that there, that is a great place for the Christian to come alongside and go, you know, that yearning you have in your heart to go out there, to touch this beauty, uh, to, in a sense, colonize it, but in that way, to be a part of it, like the good side of that motive, that comes from God. And that yearning you have to thank someone for this beauty, this epic majesty out there beyond the stars, the Bible tells you what to do with that. The Bible tells you to thank and worship the creator for the rest of your life and to put to death the ways that your idols seek to get in there and pose as the creator. Uh, the science itself can be an idol. Greed is a sin. Uh, any of those impulses are from sin, not from God. This to me is a great opportunity. And I think it's far better to admit that, admit the realities of the world that we're in. Uh, and that's even before we start talking about 
Jesus coming back. And that's our future episode, Zach, about will Christians colonize the cosmos before Jesus returns? Is this even something we can do? Because as we've talked about in previous episodes, if you take the Jesus returning prophecies literally, then I don't know what to do about Mars colonies. Uh, If Jesus returns to Earth, touching down in Jerusalem or the Mount of Olives or wherever, uh, if you're off on a moon base somewhere, how are you going to participate in that event? Uh, There would have to be a great contracting of space exploration if any of it happens before the Lord returns. But then again, that's just set up for, that's our post-credit scene for our next episode, which will be highly speculative. Well, at the end of the day, what uh, one of the other Psalms I love is Psalm 139. It just says, if I go up into the heavens, you're there. If I if I go to the depths, you are there. You know, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. So I know that wherever we go as humanity, God is already there. He can see it. He can see everything that's happening. And so it, it's not a problem for God. Um, what that practically looks like is definitely something to think about. But, you know, I, I always go back to Genesis 1. He also made the stars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's just we like, got that on a t-shirt. Lorehaven.com slash store. Yep. And it, cause it, I love it. Cause it's like this total understatement, right? It's like the biggest understatement ever. Like, Oh, by the way, he also made a hundred billion stars just in this galaxy and a few hundred other billion galaxies. Uh, just by the way, you know, he made all of everything else we see in creation. And so why not go look at it when you find a musician you like, and you listen to an album and you just listen to it over and over again, you, you get curious at some point, well, what else has this artist made? Like what other albums do they have? Or when you find a book you really like, you start going through all the other books they've written. And I, I feel that way very much about the solar system and the galaxy is that I love this earth. I want to see all the other planets God made. I, I want to go look through telescopes. Like there's this one telescope in South Texas called the uh, McDonald Observatory. And my grandfather used to tell me about things that he got to see through that. And that's one of those bucket list things for me. Uh, you know, and I want to go see a rocket ship or a, a SpaceX launch uh, one of these days. Uh, ho- hopefully they'll send more cars up there because that was pretty cool when he sent his, uh, his cherry red uh, Tesla Roadster into space. But, you know, I, I want to see the rest of what God created just because I love the things that I already can see that he created. And I think God is, is waiting for us to find some things that, you know, we're only just now going to be able to see, you know, I show my kids these pictures sometimes that they find of these deep sea creatures, like the really freaky looking fish with like the, the little like fishing rod on the top, or they glow in the dark, or there's these like jellyfish that look like a disco ball and just crazy looking stuff. That's at the very, very bottom of the ocean that only now thanks to explorers like James Cameron and and others who are sending these robots all the way down there and and sending back pictures and videos of these things that, that humanity has never seen before. I think that God is just kind of smiling every time we get to see one of these things. Cause he's like, yep, I made that. I'm glad you got to see that. I got some more stuff too. Just keep looking. He's so creative and I, I can't wait to see more of the things he's created. Amen. I had a friend once who got me thinking about these issues because although originally uh, this person was very devoted to fantasy, very devoted to you know acting creatively in God's image and truth and all of that, 
he gradually turned more in the direction of the people making the critical memes. So like, well, why are you spending money on space flight in the pursuit of beauty or technology or human achievement or whatever when you should be feeding the poor? And eventually got to the point where this friend of mine was saying, well, we ought not have anything expensive so far as people are starving. Like we, we ought not even Christians shouldn't even be allowed to live in their own houses or build church buildings. We ought to just wow. go as Spartan as possible. Uh, you know, invest everything in multifamily houses, you know, just so that people can eat. I understand that impulse, but it is contradictory to the thrust of scripture where there are multiple instances of people collecting their resources to make beautiful things, not just so we can experience the beauties that God has made, but imitate his role as creator, making big things like the tabernacle or the temple uh, or, or other, other investments as expressions of imitating God's creativity. Can these practices be distorted by sin? Absolutely. You can talk about all the lies they told to build the cathedrals. Are the cathedrals therefore ugly and should be torn down? No, there is still beauty there. I disagree strongly with this impulse to tear something down just because there was sin involved in the making of it. I don't think that God does that. God works with us, sinful motives and all. He does not approve of the sin. He is changing the sin, but ultimately God will redeem a thing that was made that is good and true and beautiful despite the motives of the person who made it. Uh, some things will go up in fire. Imagine there will be some of the space program or any novels that Christians have made or music. You know, All of that will undergo a fire purge at the end of the age, but that doesn't mean it's all going to burn. That is a Gnostic view of creation. I think it's an ultimately anti-biblical view of culture making. I don't believe in subjecting private space flight to this nonsense, to this legalism, uh, any more than I believe in subjecting fantasy and imagination uh, to this belief. God uses these things for his glory. That does not excuse our sinful motives. We are responsible for those. But God can make this into something good retroactively, just as he redeems our souls so he can redeem our rocket ships. So rocket ships and rocket travel to space are pretty cool, but so is time travel, which leads us to our second sponsor of this episode, once more, Revel Books, with Jody Headland's Come Back to Me, a romantic time travel adventure, book one in her Waters of Time series. And she was also a Fantastical Truth guest not too long ago. Back cover description, the ultimate cure that could heal any disease, crazy. That's exactly what research scientist Marion Crichton has always believed about her father's quest, even if it does stem from a desire to save her sister from the genetic disease that stole their mother from them. But when her father falls into a coma after drinking a vial of holy water believed to contain traces of residue from the tree of life, Marion must question all of her assumptions. He's left behind tantalizing clues that suggest he's crossed back in time. Insane! until Marion tests his theories and finds herself in the Middle Ages during a dangerous peasant uprising. William Durham, a valiant knight, comes to Marion's rescue and offers her protection as his wife. The longer Marion stays in the past, the more she cares about William. Can she ever find her father and make it back to the present to heal her sister? And when the time comes to leave, will she want to? That was the story. This is an endorsement from award-winning author Melanie Dobson. Brimming with wonder, come back to me will keep you riveted until the last page, captivated by the possibilities. You can see those possibilities and links in the cover and all of that at our show notes for episode 72 at lorehaven.com slash podcast. Well, let's head over to the comm station and see if we got any subspace communications. 
And I'll pull this up from Kevin L. Robinson, who wrote us, quote, you guys just continue to hit all the stuff I grew up with and that formed much of who I am today. This present darkness, Narnia, Lord of the Rings, Left Behind, etc. Like Andrew Peterson, I grew up reading the Dragonlance books, but more than that, playing all of the DL modules in Dungeons and Dragons as the dungeon master for a group of friends. I spent from age 13 to 15 in the 80s completely immersed in the world of Kryn and another world that my mother tried to move me toward because it was biblical and included scripture memorization and talking animals like Narnia and where players were various classes of holy warriors working for the overlord of many names. Unfortunately, though I put some effort into it, it didn't take with my largely non-Christian friends. There was no way they were going to memorize scripture. (laughs) And the game languished and disappeared from my world until it almost seemed a dream until recently. I mean, just when the past couple of weeks I discovered it was making a comeback. I just found out that this new guy, he's talking about James Hannibal, was the guardian of this content. He's talking about Dragon Raid. And even as a novel set in Talania that is coming out in October that I am excitedly waiting for. And just yesterday, I found a Kickstarter is coming for the new version of the game with miniatures. And so uh, Kevin goes on to explain, Stephen, how this game, you know, Dragon Raid was so formative for him uh, as a teenager and then as a children's pastor. And he used it in a discipleship curriculum with some junior high kids. So this is really cool to hear just this real world story of how of what this game meant to Kevin and, and many others that he was able to, uh, to play with. Well, if you were also a child of the 80s growing up watching the space shuttle launch, getting excited to see every new discovery that was made, or if you're from the Apollo era or from the Elon Musk era, and you want to talk about space also, send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com. Or if you go to lorehaven.com to our podcast page for this episode, you can leave a comment there. You can also follow us on the socials, Lorehaven on Facebook, at Lorehaven on Twitter, and at Lorehaven Mag on Instagram. Next on Fantastical Truth, in June, the United States Director of Intelligence released a highly anticipated report about unidentified aerial phenomena. In short, the report said they have not seen them aliens, but can't explain all of these incidences of strange things flying in the sky. We will explore this report and how Christians can understand it from a biblical worldview with help from guest Colin Samuel, who is a pastor from Reno, Nevada. He has not been abducted, but he does want to take this issue captive for Christ. Meanwhile, let's take rocket ships and popular culture captive for Christ. These things are not evil apart from human idolatry. We should not look at these things and condemn them as if they're of the devil or of human sin. Instead, the desire to explore and create comes from God. God wants his people to act as his regents on earth, stewarding its resources and going beyond for his glory. Sin does get in the way. We need to talk about that. But let's not stop there. Let's instead launch into the unknown of understanding all of these things in light of the gospel as we continue to seek and find God's fantastical truth. <laughs>